Good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. Um, about a year and a half ago, no, a little over a year ago, um, when we were thinking about planting this church and just when we were getting started, one of the first things that came to my mind was what are we going to be preaching through? Uh, what are we going to be studying through as a church? And, you know, I knew that one of my main roles was going to be thinking about this. And one of the first books that came to mind was the book of Titus, actually. This tiny little book in the New Testament. Let me encourage you to find it now. It's just a two-pager or maybe even one page in your Bible. Um, but turn to Titus chapter 1. And Titus is the perfect book for us to go through because it's a book um, written to a church plant and written to a church planter all about how to get started well and to get started on the right foundation as a church. And uh, sometimes we can think that uh, the stories in the Bible are just, you know, filled with people and experiences that are so different from us. But in actuality, um, a lot of the things that people face um, are the same things that people faced 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago. They're the same issues that keep coming up again. And in the book of Titus, we're going to see that, you know, this letter written to Titus on the island of Crete is written to people who are struggling with, you know, how to have good leadership in a church, how to stand up for what is right in a society that is, you know, full of all kinds of opinions and ideas and are challenging them in many different ways. The context itself is kind of this um, Roman, Greek, Hellenistic culture um, that is obviously totally foreign to Christianity and to the message of Jesus. And into that context, uh, Paul is writing to Titus. And uh, the reason why it's so important for us to understand what the message is from Titus is because um, a healthy church is what's going to lead people to the hope of the world, which is Jesus Christ. A healthy church, a church that is standing on the right foundation— that's functioning and acting like it's supposed to function and act, is going to show people what the person of Jesus is like and introduce them to him as their ultimate hope uh, in all areas of life. And so, man, with, without a healthy church, um, God is not going to do his work effectively around the planet. And it's, it's not that the church is so amazing, it's that that's how God's actually designed it to be. So if we look at Titus chapter 1, we're going to look at three callings that this um, letter begins with. Paul starts it off just verses 1 through 4 we're going to look at today and he wants to set the tone for the book and for the church right from the get-go. So the first calling that Paul has for them is a call to serve, that churches are called to service. Look at verse 1 with me. It says this, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The person behind the message really matters. And that is the case in a lot of areas. I think even of uh, in Canada, how like every fall we kind of mark the Terry Fox run. And if you know anything about Terry Fox and if you're Canadian, you've know the name for sure and you probably know the story it is an amazing story of of courage and resilience of you know this young man terry who had cancer and wanted to 
run across Canada and raise awareness and raise funds for cancer and cancer research. And it's just stunning to think that he ran almost a marathon every day for like 143 days. That is crazy. And that he did it with a prosthetic limb, which was really, you know, rudimentary at best. And he did it while uh, suffering uh, with cancer himself. It's, it's an amazing story. And so every fall, um, kids and adults are across Canada and now globally, they run to kind of raise awareness for cancer and raise funds still to this day. Paul here begins his letter with some really important language. It's not just thrown, there, uh, thrown in there as like extra words. Look at what he says there. Paul, a servant of God. That word literally means doulos. That means a slave. He chooses to use this word saying, I, Paul, am going to serve God as a slave of his. Basically meaning all my plans, all my desires, all the things that I could put forward, I'm laying those aside. He's taking the image of first century slavery system where basically... um, the slave would do the will of the owner, okay? We tend to bring in, like, uh, slavery that was, you know, um, African-American slaves in the U.S., and we have this really horrible picture. In the first century, slavery was still slavery, but basically it was like you lived in the household with your master. You were in relationship with your master, but you did the will of your master, of your master, excuse me. And so here, the Apostle Paul is saying, I want to set before you right from the beginning that your call is to serve. And and I'm telling you this, but I'm also showing you this by the example of my life. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul writes this, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Also in Philippians 4.9, it says this, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So Paul's saying, my life, part of what my calling is, is to be an example, to be an example and to be on display for you to see so that you will practice what I'm practicing. And so here he's telling Titus and he's telling the the local church that he's writing to he's saying I'm called to serve as a slave to Christ and that's what you're called to as well you're actually called to a life of service not to Paul's not saying hey you know there's some other letters where Paul's like I'm an apostle I'm this I write letters Paul's not doing any of that here he's saying you want to be a healthy church learn to serve learn to serve Christ He also reinforces this in chapter 2 when he tells Titus this in chapter 2, verse 7. He says, basically you could put it this way. It would be like, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So he's saying, Titus. When you go and you um, explain to people the gospel, when you're there teaching for them, they should be able to look at your life and see that when, when Titus talks about serving, it's actually modeled in his life. We actually see it happening. 
So Paul says, I'm telling you to do this. Now you, Timothy, as church planter, you tell your church to do this, but lead out through actually the evidence of the work of your life. Show them by what you're doing. Now the problem with this is we often associate leadership in some way because Paul's talking to a church planter. So Paul's kind of leading and, and showing what leadership is to look like. And we associate leadership with um, negative views of power or negative examples of power. So we often think nowadays, many of us, maybe not everybody, but many of us think of leadership and associate leadership with negative power. And there's a legitimate reason for that because we've seen like in the news, you know, people in power, whether it's in the business world or the entertainment world, um, maybe even uh, you've seen or experienced in the Christian world, in the church, where individuals or um, groups of leaders have misused their power. And so we bring them now to the context of the scriptures, this background, this previous knowledge of what power and leadership looks like. And it's just, it's bad. It's negative. And it's not surprising. I mean, you see this happening in the scripture itself, in, in the life of Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter 20, there's this example of the mother of James and John. She comes to Jesus and she, she says, Jesus, she actually bows before Jesus. And she says, I, I have an idea. She says, when you go into your kingdom, when you sit on your throne, what if my sons, what if my boys, James and John, were to sit on either side and they could rule like the universe with you? Don't you think that would be good? I mean, she's thinking, she's bringing in with her natural mind, she's thinking, I love my boys. They're really good at what they do. Um, they could serve Christ and they could rule the universe. She might be even thinking it could be beneficial for me, for the people in the family. She's kind of bringing in an earthly perspective and Jesus gets this and he he gently um, explains to her what leadership looks like in the church. So it says this in verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, so he calls the disciples around. Mom asks the question. He's like, okay, I need to teach a lesson here. Brings them in. He says, you know that rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So she says, listen, this idea that mom had, it makes sense. That's what you're seeing around you. The world around you, the Roman world, the way that they exercise authority is they come and they, they dominate, they control, they rule with authority. Now what you're doing, mom, and disciples who are like liking this idea, you're bringing in that perspective into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, there's no place for that. That's not how it works actually in the kingdom of God. He says this in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus says, your calling is not to bring this earthly perspective of leadership into the church. The calling of Christians is to come and lead still. It's not like all... Um, all ruling and, and authority is gone. I mean, Jesus still appointed 12 disciples who would be the apostles. They would be the leaders of this movement called the, the church movement. Um, but he says the way that you lead, the way that you exercise that authority is not like the world does. Don't bring that into the kingdom of God and to, into what Christ is doing. We serve. So he says, I'm Paul. 
Titus, church at large, what we've been called to do is serve. Do loss serving. Serve as if Christ is the only voice that we actually listen to. So we're called to serve. But second, we're called to the truth. Look at this. At the end of verse 1, it says this. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. There's a, there's a movie that we watched recently called um, National Treasure with Nicolas Cage and Diane Kruger. And um, there's one scene in the movie there near the end where they are getting close to what they think is the national treasure. Okay, And they're going down this big cavern. It's like a huge cave. And it's all crumbling around them because it's 100 years old and, or, or more than 100. And so... Nicholas Cage and Diane are on this swinging platform that's supposed to be lowering, but it's about to crumble. And Nicholas Cage is holding on to Diane, and the Declaration of Independence is about to fall over the edge. And as they're swinging, he yells down and asks her, do you trust me? And she kind of like sits there for, or hangs there for a moment, and she says yes. And so then he drops her and grabs the Declaration of Independence. And it looks like she's dropped her down to, the, down to her death. But what we find out, spoiler alert, is drops her onto a little ledge that's sitting there. And, and the movie goes on, right? The hero has made his choice. But that little statement there, do you trust me, is an interesting statement. Anything that we do in life comes down to a question like that. Do you trust me? The choices that you make in your life, the things that you choose to do, all come down to the influences and the um, experiences and the voices uh, of people who, or maybe institutions, that speak into what you should do or shouldn't do in life. And so here, Paul is saying the, the foundation that you need to be on as a church is you need to actually dig into and learn about the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. This is part of what we are called to do as Christians. Jen Wilkin puts it this way in her book, Women of the Word. She says, we must make a study of our God, what he loves, what he hates, how he speaks and acts. We cannot imitate a God whose features and habits we have never learned. We must make a study of him if we want to become like him. We must seek his face. And that's what Paul is saying here. Part of what we're called to do is to find out what the truth is. Our calling is to know what is the truth, the truth found in Jesus Christ. And so we dig in as individuals uh, to find out who is this God? What is he like? How can I be more like him since he is the truth? It's wrapped up in him. It's wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we realize that if we're not shaped by the truth of the word, by the word of God, we'll be shaped by something else. Right? There's going to be forces, there's going to be cultural movements, the, the ebb and flow of culture is going to actually drive what we're thinking is the most important. Mark Clark recently uh, put it this way, he says, Charles Darwin and Richard Dawkins would have us make sense of all of life in terms of biology. Stephen Hawking and Neil deGrasse Tyson would reduce reality to physics. 
Freud and Pinker would point to psychology, Marx to economics, Hefner to sex, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk to technology, the media to entertainment. Who defines what life is all about for you? That's his question. Do we invent meaning or purpose or do we discover it? Take God or an absolute reference point out of the equation and self or the psychology of, of social psychology of the moment becomes the definer of all things. And so Paul says, here's what you need to do. If you want to be a healthy church, if you want to be a healthy believer, grow in the knowledge of the truth. But Paul says there's another way that that's going to happen, actually. And he's speaking here to, to Titus, maybe more specifically. He says another way that that's going to happen is through the preaching of this word. So it's going to come from individual spiritual formation of you studying and praying and, and communing with God's people. But it's also going to come, you can see in verse 3, through it's going to be manifested in his word through the preaching. So this is what Titus is going to actually bring to the church as the elder or the pastor, the same word there, or he is going to be the one who's going to bring the, the word of God to the people through the preaching of the word. So we experience that every Sunday at Citizens and we're committed to um, the faithful preaching of the word of God to see what does it have to say. And so I just want to highlight kind of the nature of preaching in, in one point here, just to get us thinking and sure on what is actually happening when we talk about the preaching of the word of God. And it's this, and I got this from David Platt, give him credit for uh, this point here, really simple, but it's so important for all of us to understand. And it's this, the word of God is the preacher's only source of authority. Okay? The word of God is the preacher's only source of authority. Here's what is not the source of my authority or anybody who preaches here at Citizens. The, the preacher's authority is not personal. Okay? So I don't come and hope that the charisma of my speaking or that my personality kind of drives, you know, the, the weekly teaching of the word of God. My personality is not the thing that's going to drive the preaching of the word of God here at Citizens because I could be gone next week and someone else is going to take this pulpit time and they're going to preach the word of God and, and it's not going to be based on my personality or the other person's personality that's coming up. So it's not based on me personally. The preacher's authority is not intellectual. So my calling is not to come here with the greatest ideas, with the flashiest stories, with the, with the best kind of ideas that I grab from, from books and places. All those things help. And like good preachers will bring in different ideas and different thoughts from different places. But that is not the authority of the preacher. It's not these great ideas. It's not all kinds of fancy um, tricks of the mind. The preacher's authority is not psychological. So my, my, the sermons that we preach, my sermons are not here to answer every question that a person has to ask. I mean, it's hard to put a sermon together knowing that there's all kinds of different ideas out there, but it's impossible to put a sermon together knowing that there's like thousands of different um, circumstances and experiences that people are going through and to tailor make every message to that is impossible. 
So I'm not a counselor up here. I'm not trying to get to the heart of every specific issue when it comes to preaching. And the preacher's authority is not experiential. So I don't come having gone through everything that you've gone through or having gone through everything that even the Word of God speaks about. So, you know, you take an example like divorce. You know, I haven't gone through a divorce, um, but that doesn't mean that I'm not able to speak into that. Now, someone who has gone through a divorce maybe has some like great insight into some of the specifics around, you know, that whole experience. But whatever the Word of God speaks to, and this is, this is the point here again, the Word of God is the preacher's source of authority. That's it. And so Paul says here to, to, Tim, to Titus, keep thinking Timothy, but to Titus, he says, your role as church planter there is for you to teach, is to preach the Word of God so that your people understand what is God saying. So when I come every Sunday and, and give this sermon, that's my goal is what does the Word of God say? And so Paul says at the end of chapter 2, he says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So Paul says, what I'm giving you, the gospel, preach that. Just exhort them and help them and encourage them and give them everything that you've got from the word of God so that what they see is God. What they see is the message that comes from God. And so the calling here is clear, a call to service and a call to truth through personal understanding of the word of God and also through the preaching of the word of God within the context of the local church. Number three, and the last point for this morning, is that we are called to each other, called to each other. Look at verse four. To Titus, my true child in a common faith grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You see the um, personal relational language in there? He says, Titus, my true child in the common faith. We've talked about this a lot, about this, this concept of the church being a family, the church being a place where we um, experience um, relationships that are like family. So you'll see even in the scriptures where we use the terms brothers and sisters. And here, Paul is using this language of like a father and son kind of relationship and the importance of the local church being experienced on a familial level where the relationships that we experience are, are closer than just a bond of friendship, are closer than just a bond of acquaintances. And I don't know if you've experienced this, probably many of you have experienced, you know, somebody pouring into your life, somebody investing in you as a person and just loving on you. And then maybe through that experience, you coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I know I've experienced it being able to, you know, lead a Bible study with a young lady, Liz and I were able to do that on the university campus and seeing her come to faith. Or when we were in West Africa, you know, slowly explaining the truth and sharing the gospel with people there and seeing them come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's, a, um, it's an amazing opportunity. And what you find is on the other side of the gospel is this new kind of bond, this new relationship. 
And that relationship is like a family kind of relationship. And there are some unique aspects of that where the, the, the metaphor of a parent-child works really well, right? So that picture is there so that we can understand, okay, what does it actually mean um, to be a parent in the faith, you know, over someone? So one of the things I think it means is that we actually begin to, we give sacrificially. So when you're a parent, being a parent is all about giving sacrificially. It's giving of your time. It's giving of your resources. It's giving of your presence with these people that are living in your home. You, you know, giving of your gray hairs, like whatever it is, the, the joys of life and the hardship of life is all experienced within that context. And as a parent, healthy parents and parents who love their children, they will just give sacrificially day after day, month after month, year after year. And this is what we're called to. This, this picture of parenting in the Christian faith works because we're also called to do that as spiritual parents of others or maybe spiritual siblings of others. The calling that we have is to, to care for each other, to, to love each other, to sacrificially give towards each other so that we see each other growing in our faith. Another aspect would be um, correcting in love. So as parents, if you've been a parent, you know that, that there are times where you have to correct and you have to guide and you have to say, this is like, that's not a good choice. You're going to have some really bad consequences for that. That is a really good choice. Go that way. That happens when you're a spiritual parent of someone or a spiritual sibling. I can remember being in West Africa with these new believers and, and just kind of talking about really basic, practical things like, you know, reading the Bible or, or how to conduct yourself in community or, or choices to make when, when it comes to work, all these basic things. Um, new believers, they don't have an understanding of what does God have to say, you know, in this situation. And so we say, follow me. I'm going to show you. I want to guide you along the way. But there's some ways actually where um, it's a little bit different than the earthly example of a parent. And I think one of those ways is that it's, it could be a really short season. Okay, so if you're a parent, you're going to have your child probably for 18, 20 years in the home, maybe. You know, and then the goal is they go off to maybe university or they, they move out or they get married or something. And so that's, that's a couple of decades of them under your roof. And this might not be the case when it comes to being a spiritual parent. It might only be for like six months or something, or it might be a season of a couple of years, or maybe it will end up being a decade or two, but it's not as like necessarily long-term as being a parent. And, and the last one that's really important is that um, being a spiritual parent is for anyone. It's for anyone in the church. So when we think of kids, we think of, you know, a mother and a father. They're married together and they've had children. That's, that's who it is. And, and sometimes uh, the church can like center around that nuclear family. Well, the beauty of a spiritual family is that everyone is called to be spiritual parents. Everybody is called to be spiritual siblings. So whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're married with children or without children, whether you are an empty nester or whether you're a widower, whatever your category is, your calling is to be a spiritual parent. And Paul, who we know was not married, uh, no indication that he ever was at all, has all these people 
that he can point to and say, these are my kids in the faith. I mean, he'd be like a parent with his phone, you know, if he's traveling around. He's like, here's Titus. Titus is my kid in the faith. Look at this. This is Timothy. Timothy, that's my boy, my son in the faith. Here's Phoebe, daughter in the faith. She's working hard with me in ministry. Paul can point to all these people, names, relationship, this bond, this family bond, and say, I'm a dad. I'm a dad in the faith. Or with others, I'm a brother. I'm a brother in the faith. I'm here. I'm for them. I'm going to, you know, spend my time. I'm going to invest in them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to sacrifice for them because we're family. We're family in the faith. And let me tell you, we live in a world of loneliness. We live in a world that is desperate, that is filled with orphans that think they have found their way and they're scratching and they're clawing and they're longing for these relationships. And the church, a healthy church, is uniquely positioned to serve the community, to provide a loving, relational bond that comes with sacrifice, comes with joy and hardship, but it's a place where people belong as family. So we're called to service, we're called to the truth, and we're called to each other. Let me just conclude with this little example. In 1872, the first internal combustion engine was invented. Okay, it was kind of kicking around. A bunch of people had the idea at the same time, but first one kind of got going. And it was, you know, it's amazing for over 100 years now, the advancements in automobiles and machinery and, you know, trucks and all this, all this coming out of the internal combustion engine. The movement of our society is almost built on the back of this engine. And do you know what's happening in there? Do you know what's happening in the engine? I mean, you probably don't think about it much. I don't ever think about it, unless it's using an example like this. What's happening is thousands and thousands of explosions. Explosions pushing down uh, a piston, which is then going to turn the engine, and it's going to connect to the wheels, and it's going to create movement. Listen, we as a church have a power that moves us. Paul says this in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Within every believer is this Holy Spirit. And when we proclaim the gospel to others, when we tell other people about the gospel, the power of God is at work creating movement around us. So church, we're called to be a healthy church that is driven by the power of the gospel to see movement in our own lives, in the life of our church, and in the life of the communities that we live in. Let's answer that call. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the teaching here in Titus. Thank you for these very practical and real words. Lord, would you help us to answer this call and to put our trust and hope in Jesus, who gives us the power to to move mountains um, because of the, the finished work that he accomplished on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. In his name we pray, amen.